Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to this. It is the Infrequent Flying Podcast pilot episodes. As always, I'm joined by Dunk, Parco and Godders, but of course we're not here to talk to those three because today we have not one, but two special guests. Uh, I think I'll go with you, Parco. Introduce our first special guest. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so uh, with me is my son, number two son, James, who's uh, just finished elementary flying training at Cranwell and did his last trip with Dunk Mason. Wow. Wow. <laughs> right. Is he still in therapy? Yeah. yeah. He, well, he's, yeah, you've, you've seen somebody, haven't you? Yeah. You're not, you're only, not... only a couple of hours of therapy. But we only did it on Friday as well. He's already booked Back. himself in. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So you said the last trip. Did he chop you, James, or did you finish the course? Imagine if you chopped him. He, he allowed me to finish, actually, very kindly. <laughs> <laughs> Good lad, that doesn't happen often. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and for our second special guest, I'll let Goddess do, 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 do the honours. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be uh, uh, able to say hello, after a minor Skype fab, uh, to uh, Dave Warrington, who is uh, an old boss of mine. Where when uh, I was bringing the F-35 into to service, he was the, uh, the F-35 force commander. But before that, Jay joined the uh, the Air Force just after Parky, it seems like, about 50 years ago. In 1985, a tornado pilot, and that's part of the reason that, uh, that we're on here, this, that Dave's on here this evening. Um, and then station commander up at uh, up at Cranwell, and uh, like I say, you know, one of the last jobs in F thirty five, and now working for uh, CAE on the outside. So uh, has got all sorts of views. Uh, Dave, hello, good to see you. Hey, Connors, yeah, it's great to see you. I'm, I'm Parky Duncan, uh, and of course, meet James as well and JB. So interesting to hear James's stories, you know, for uh, for what it's like to be a youngster sort of going through. It only seems like yesterday, but uh, but a long time since I was in that same position. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. And we'll we'll get into it in a minute. But, um, you know, the reason you're on here, we spoke to Nick Hurd the other week, um, 30 years on from the Gulf War, of which you were involved in. And, uh, and we'll get your story in a minute. We'll uh, we'll leave everyone on tenterhooks just for the moment. Because we haven't said hello to Dunk yet. Hello. Well, he's not got a special guest, has he? <laughs> he didn't bring one. Technically, he shouldn't be here. <laughs> no, he's, he's got that sock puppet. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, it was uh, it was an absolute pleasure going flying with Jamesy. It was more of a pleasure for me probably than it was for him. <laughs> Given that it was his uh, final handling test or final nav test. Um, but we, um, we, where did we go, Jamesy? Tell everyone where we went. 
Uh, so we went up north around uh, Leeds, Bradford, and then went through the dams, did the dams run, which was awesome, and then popped back out to Cranwell. So it was it was a great, great trip, great fun. And the weather was perfect. So the weather was get perfect. Lost. What were you flying, James? Pardon, sorry? What were you flying? Uh, the Prefect is what the EFT's done at the moment. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. So just to uh, just to focus on what James has been doing, so um, James is in the army, as it turns out, but he's going to go and fly. Good uh, God! Yeah. Good <laughs> Chris, Christmas uh, is very awkward in the park. <laughs> <laughs> but there was uh, there was another uh, little. I think I'm right in saying, James, you you were saying that uh, that was the last army um, trip from 57 Squadron. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. So that was the the last army flight and now they're not they're not going to go through elementary training as i understand they're just going to go straight to shawbury that right james yeah correct so there's one course behind me but they're actually at barkston on the yeah. uh, navy squadron there yeah. so so i was the last one out cranwell so i imagine you got a great picture of that last uh, historic event Doug. We, we did we've got a fantastic picture which we'll post on uh, on the twitter feed so i've just got a quick question then james are you aware of any differences in traditions which you're well, yeah, which, which you're aware of between army flyers and and the RAF? Um, there's slight differences. I think EFT for us army students is a little bit less stressful because we all know that we're going rotary, so there's no other streams for us. Ah. Whereas the RAF guys and the Navy guys all get streamed, and now kind of EFT is getting shorter. They get streamed on less hours, so it is, it is. It can become quite stressful if you really want jets or you really want a certain platform. But you really want Rotary Wing, yeah? Yeah, Rotary's popular at the moment. Excellent stuff. Excellent. And uh, how- actually, I bet all of us pains us to stay. I mean, Duncan uh, and Goddess would have done some helicopter time when they went before the Harrier, which I know we've talked about it before. You utterly loved. You know, Dave, have you flown any helicopter? Got your stickies on those bad boys? Yeah, any, you know, from passenger flying and stuff. But, yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, I had the pleasure of flying the a, a Wessex for a couple of days oh, really? uh, down in Cyprus when the Wessex was, yeah. was, which was a hoot and a roar sort of, you know, landing on beaches and doing all that sort of stuff. And well, wasn't yeah. it a hoot and a roar with 84? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wasn't 84 squadron? Hoot and a roar with 84? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure it was 84, don't, but I wouldn't bet my life on it. It was a squadron that was in Cyprus that took me flying. <laughs> On a helicopter, so yeah. I, I think a lot of us have that secretly. We've never admitted, obviously, in public, like on a podcast. But <laughs> very cool helicopters, and I, I, I definitely see the attraction of flying those things. Must be brilliant. Well, I um, I was at Barton Aerodrome on Sunday, uh, which is another story entirely. But I've got to say, it does sound like a rather cool job being one of the helicopter pilots for either the police force or the ambulance, because that is that is a form of service which will. Well, you're doing something every day, which is pretty cool. Well, the, yeah, hundred percent on that front. Force, sorry, the police force use the same helicopter that we train on at Shawbury now, so that is a handy little hour conversion. Yeah, yeah. Book. yeah. Just uh, on on that front, James. We um, just before lockdown last year, in my last job. Um, we did a, a trip up to Shawbury to have a look around at the place and, uh, and have, have a uh, look at the sim- how to go in the simulators and, and what I don't know whether um, CAE do uh, any of the sims up at Shawbury, but the um, it was flipping brilliant, genuinely one of the best sims uh, I've been in. 
and genuinely one of the hardest helicopters I've seen to fly. Um, I was sat in there with my, uh, no names, but the, uh, the rear admiral I was working for at the time. And he's thousands of hours on, uh, uh, on seeking. And uh, I got in, just about made it onto the back of the ship um, really, really badly. Um, and he went, right, I'll show you how to do it. Took off and immediately nosedived into the sea. It was perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we do got us. They are our sims. So, uh, you know, I was I was I was hesitating. I was resisting, you know, doing the industry, uh, the industry marketing pitch. But so I, I'll just say that they are our sims. And I'm glad to hear that sort of they're really good. Uh, you know, it would also be fair to say there was one or two teething troubles to sort of get them get them into service and up to speed as well. But but there are. I was diving into the sea. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, when do you start, James? When's the? Uh, have you got a long hold? Are you straight in? Uh, so, no, eighth of November, I start Shawbury. So, just quite quite a small hold, really. Um, where are you going to do that? Don't say at home. So I'm off down to Middle Wallop to Army um, headquarters. So, Army Air Corps headquarters down there. Well, check this out. One of the boys on his course. Um, has got a hold in Belize. Yeah, good work. Belize. He's really jealous of my hold. <laughs> I bet you he is. Flipping neck. that's a great hold to get, isn't it? Just pop Goodness. out to Belize. Um, well, Wado, so we brought you along for a reason. I mentioned it was 30 years since the uh, the Gulf War. And I, I tell you what, one of, the, one of the best things that we did in the job where I worked for you was... Um, there were, I think, you know, some of the people that, uh, that work with us didn't know your backstory in around the uh, in the Gulf War. And uh, I got Wado to come along. We did a, a force development uh, event, you know, um, going and seeing various uh, places around London with historic uh, with history connections to, uh, you know, Zeppelin raids, this sort of stuff. And actually, we finished the day with uh, with Wado talking through his story, more of which in a second which especially the people who uh, who didn't know this story were left sort of jaw on the floor, um, not really expecting it because um, it's not the th sort of thing that Wado talks about all the time, you know, uh, wandering around the place. Um, and it's fascinating to hear. So, uh, you know, Wado, in, in terms of the Gulf War, how did you end up there? So you said you were on 27 Squadron. Was it uh, was it quick flash to bang in terms of turning up um, in, into the operating area or had you known for a long time you were going? No, I, no, it was fairly quick, actually, got it. So, so uh, I, I was, you know, the junior pilot, so the JP on, on the squadron. And actually, I was, you know, on holiday in Florida. So my sister lives in Florida. And so living the high life in Florida and just got a call from one of the execs uh, sort of saying... You know, you'd be watching the news, you know, but of course I wasn't. And, you know, you'll know <laughs> Kuwait, is that a country? You know, so, uh, so, but, you know, we're off in a couple of weeks. So, you know, when you get back, we'll be quick workout, you know, get the kit and uh, and off you go. So I really wasn't ex uh, expecting it at all. I mean, you know, it was in the days. So the squadron had fairly recently just deployed to Red Flag, you know, and I, and I wasn't allowed to go and fly on Red Flag because I wasn't experienced enough. It was a bit of an bit of a shock you know they say well i know you haven't got 500 hours yet Wally, but you're uh, but you're off to the gulf so so that was it and i mean to be honest god is you know you get that obviously you know it'd be wrong to say there wasn't you know a degree of anxiousness or trepidation but but there was a sort of a great degree degree of, sort of professional excitement you know because it was like being picked for the first team you know so um 
say you're the young football player coming through or rugby player or whatever, say, you know, there was a, it was a great, great sort of feeling that I was part of it. And, you know, as the, as the time came to, uh, to deploy, obviously, you know, you start thinking about things a little bit more seriously, but you know, it was, it was great. So got back and, and got ready and, and, and deployed over there. And when I actually deployed, I was the youngest pilot. People often give me that label still, which is wrong uh, to be accurate. <laughs> Simon Burgess actually was the youngest one. I think when we, uh, when we were actually flying in the war itself, but, uh, but I was the sort of youngest, one of the first ones to, uh, uh, to deploy, so so yeah, so so that stage, you know, it was excitement to be part of the team and be included. So how, how old were you at the time? So at the time I was uh, twenty four. So I, I mean, I don't know how old you you are, James. Obviously, for me now at this age, you look about twelve. But I guess you're older because <laughs> uh, twenty six. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, I was you know twenty four. Joined the air force aged eighteen because. All I ever wanted to do was uh, was fly aeroplanes and didn't really think I had the chance or whatever. But somehow, you know, I was a test case that managed to get through and whatever and didn't get weeded out. <laughs> you were the second one, actually. I was first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, you know, so and that you know, ends up on a day at uh, day at the airfield at Marham. Uh, with uh, with the rest of the squadron bunch who were deploying, you know, getting on a coach to drive to Bryce Norton to fly to Germany, uh, pick up the jets in Germany, and then fly over to the Gulf. Just on that, when you went to Germany, I seem to remember Nick Heard saying something along the lines of, "It wasn't one squadron; it was one squadron, but mixed up with lots of different different pilots." They seem to go. Did they get all the most experienced pilots into that one squadron, regardless of where you were from? Yeah, so they, they were. I mean, obviously, the fact that I was there meant that they weren't the most experienced. But uh, you know, there was only I think a dozen pilots or a dozen crews from Marham that went. And yeah, the the idea was a composite wing, but uh, but within that, you know, there were the sort of squadron identities, identities and stuff. So Nick was on fifteen squadron. His, his squadron commander was John Broadbent. Mm. We were on twenty seven squadron, and tragically. You know, just uh, in a few weeks, just before we deployed, our own squadron commander was uh, was killed in a fatal accident over the North Sea. So we sort of deployed without our squadron commander, uh, who at the time actually was going to sort of lead, you know, to be the detachment commander as such. So, so you know, we went and, and essentially were taken under the wing by the uh, by the German squadron commanders out there, like John Broadbent or whatever. But there was always there was always a little bit, you know, because they were a very formed unit. Obviously, squadrons have got very strong identities, and and so we were there, sort of as uh, not a, not as a side. It'd be wrong to say that, but we, you know, we were still the Marum bunch in amongst you know what was then sort of quite a dominant Germany bunch. Ah, interesting. And uh, and what uh, when did you actually get there? Did you get there at the back end of uh, in the sort of November time in nineteen ninety? No, no, it was uh, it was late August. So it was late August in '90 when we when we arrived, um, and um, we went to Bahrain. So we set up in Bahrain, and, and although you know the war didn't actually start until until the until January, I don't know with Parky whether you were involved, but the the F3s had deployed forward. So the F3s were sort of a holding a queue and stuff in, in air defence. There, there were F4s that were back in Cyprus 
in reserve because actually because that, that was me what i i was there bravely in reserve in cyprus which is a hell of a place to have a war <laughs> yeah in the in the animal house yeah exactly but um but yeah so when we when we hit the ground i mean we hit the ground running and, and we were holding quick reaction alert because we thought that all of the iraqi troops you know there were however many you know tens of thousands we're going to continue their advance through Kuwait and into Saudi Arabia. And so our job was to just throw everything at them to stop them, sort of to stop that advance should it happen. Of course, they never did that. And then we, you know, we went into a few months of, uh, uh, of build up and strategizing and various things like that. Not that I was involved in that, you know, but um but yeah, so but but at the time we you know we were on we were on quick reaction alert and expecting to go sort of with the jets loaded up as full as they could and uh, Nick uh, Nick Heard said maybe I, I remember this wrongly but I think he said he deployed out there later and it was only a couple of weeks and then he was and then it kicked off uh, is that how you remember it Dave uh, we were you there with Nick or? yeah so I'm not sure exactly when sort of uh, when when Nick deployed but. Uh, so we were there in August, and there was a fairly small. I think we, I think we had something like twelve jets or something like that at the beginning, and then gradually, obviously, the 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 the, the op got bigger and bigger. So first of all, we were only in Bahrain. Then we set up the bases at Tabuk and uh, Dharan. So we brought in more and more squadrons, more and more people getting involved. So so it you know it just expanded and expanded. So I spent six weeks six weeks at Bahrain. And then the Maran team moved up to Tabuk and set Tabuk. So Tabuk is a is a base, you know, in sort of the near, not, not far away from uh, Medina, actually, in uh, in Saudi Arabia, and and a very sort of remote location. I mean, you know, the middle, the middle, you know, very culturally uh, Arabic in terms of you know not not really having that much exposure. It was a BE systems base, but not much exposure to all of these all of these Air Force hordes, uh, you know, coming in there to set that base up. So that was an amazing time, actually. But uh, but we did that. And then, and then Dunk, we, we came back home in November. So so when they realized that this was going to be long term, there were many more crews and stuff, and they needed to turn the handle. So we came back in November, uh, and, as, and along with, you know, lots of other crews who deployed there from the beginning, and didn't expect to go back out again, to be honest. You know, we thought sort of that was it, it was done. The rest of the crews had sort of taken over, so Nick may well have been one of those. Obviously, he went to Bahrain, but uh, but you know it wasn't it wasn't to be. Obviously, we sort of you know ended up going back there. And did you? So did you go back um, before the start, or did you go up in January, or did you go back uh, after that? Yeah, so so we were so we were back uh, for a couple of weeks, uh, and then you know we got uh, we we got you know, the next message, which was you're going to go back out there. Uh, and so we sort of we had Christmas at home and then went back there just after Christmas because we sort of knew at that stage, you know, when it was broadly speaking, when it was going to start. So so we went back out there at the beginning of January and went back to uh, back back to Bahrain. At this stage, the squadron had got a new squadron commander, a guy called Nigel Elsden, who was uh, who'd only just qualified on the tornado. He was a, he was a Jaguar pilot, you know, for most of his career. So, so you know, we went back out there with our new squadron commander, and uh, just literally a, a few days before the before the shooting started. So, I think we had one or 
maximum of two sort of reefer mill sorties because we've been there a long time, obviously. So, you know, one or two for mill sorties, and and that was it. We were we were waiting for it for the balloon to go up. Now, were you all tasked in the tornado force with uh, airfield denial, or were you on a range, or were you on a range of roles? We we just operating the JP two three three. Yeah, so at the beginning, primarily, yeah. So I, I think there were some aircraft that were doing the reconnaissance task um, at a different base, but primarily our role was to uh, was to keep the Iraqi Air Force on the ground. So by uh, by attacking their airfields, and the JP two three three was a it was a monster of a weapon, uh, but uh, but it was designed specifically for that uh, for that task. So that was our uh, that was our primary role. The beginning was to contribute by doing that. What was your feelings then? So you knew the shooting war was going to start. So you just had Christmas at home, um, and and then back out there. I guess there was a palpable excitement about the place. Was there? Was there a trepidation as well? Yeah, I think it was all of that mixed. On yeah, I mean you get different stories, but I think you know there, there was there was a one level. Obviously, at some point, uh, you know some element of fear because you know you knew you were going to be shot at and stuff and you know we maybe didn't quite understand you know that stage by uh, all of the uh, all of the capabilities that the Iraqis had and stuff but we knew there was a risk counted against that was the fact that we at that stage we really expected the ground war to be very very bloody indeed you know really hard fighting so there was there was a point of you know, dry your eyes, you know, this This is going to be tough stuff, you know, so, so you know, crack on with it. At a different level, there was there was that sort of, you know, professional excitement, but also the professional anxiety in terms of, well, actually, how am I going to do, you know, under that sort of pressure, which you can't train for, you know, you can try and get close to it, but you can't really train for that. So, you know, yeah, am, am I going to sort of stand up to this? Am I, you know, am I going to do it? And uh, so that was a, that was a different level, um, you know. And then a sort of personal level, of course, of being separated from families and stuff. I mean, during the during the time that I came back home, I I got engaged to uh, to, to Claire and stuff. So you know, I was obviously sort of missing family back home and stuff, and not really knowing how long you were going to be away for. You know, when we go away to Goose Bay, you know, in those days, any Goose Bay or Red Flags or whatever, you know, it's sort of two or three weeks and, and you know your end date. But then, you know, there was no end date, which, uh, which itself brought uh, brought a different level. But a fantastic sense of, you know, collective endeavour and uh, comradeship and stuff like that as well. You know, people, well, we're all individuals and people deal with it very individually in terms of how they cope with that sort of thing. You know, there's no no right way or wrong way. People just do it their own way to, to get through it. But you know, I think running through that, I think I would say, uh, you know, a huge amount of professionalism by everyone involved. And were, you, were you crewed up with uh, the same guy that you were crewed up with previously? Did you rotate back as a crew? Yeah. So, so I was crewed with Rob because I was, you know, the youngster when we sort of first deployed him. Poor old Robbie Stewart, you know, who was one of the most one of the most experienced navigators, um, you know, a, a professional aviator. Um, you know, so he, he, Robbie's 20 years older than me, but, uh, so, you know, he, he got the youngster and we were, you know, we had a fair bit of responsibility on our shoulders, you know, we were the sort of deputy lead of the eight ship and stuff, but, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, so, 
So I was crewed up with Robbie in before we deployed in the August, actually, you know, so we did a few worker sources because I'd never done I'd never done operational low flying. So, you know, because, again, I wasn't I wasn't experienced enough to do operational low flying. So I had to do a very quick, a very quick workup on operational low flying up in moon country in Scotland and stuff in order to have that to, to deploy and stuff. So, so, yeah, I was crewed up with Robbie, you know, as we as we deployed and then stayed, obviously, crewed with crewed with Robbie uh, throughout and, and as you know you know went through that whole experience and, and I know you know very well Kirsty his daughter yeah and uh, for those listening uh, uh, Kirsty who is uh, is in the blades in 2XL X Red Arrows as well so uh, you know clearly the RAF blood runs thick and strong or at least the aviation blood there um, what, so talk to us about um, were you day or night when it came to um, you know the first day and operations so uh, we were night, and um, I, I think and, you know, you'd have to check the history books or whatever. But I think I'm saying there was, there was maybe only one or, or possibly even two day sources, and then you know, of course, on one of those, the two Johns, John Peter and John Nickel, got shot down. And I think you know they will say that the reason they were a day daytime was because of a bit of a timing cock up and delays and things like that. So uh, so nighttime was definitely the, you know the place where we wanted to be. Um, to stack things more in our favour, and of course the tornado, you know, was the night bomber. You know, of of that era, there was no more capable aeroplane to to do that sort of job. So, uh, so you know, most of the stuff was planned at night. So I, I you know, I flew at night. And how, how was that first mission? Um, you know, uh, the you know, with the trepidation and all that sort of stuff. You know, when you actually saw it, the you know, Nick went through it the other week, and and just flipping amazing, seeing AAA over targets and and. You know everything that you guys saw. Yeah, it was it was it was incredible. I mean, I think once you, you know, there was as um, was you were briefed and got ready and had a you know had something to eat and stuff and you know, we were all bantering and stuff. But you could see that there was a you know there was there was a level of uh, whatever you would call it trepidation, anxiety, you know, but just getting on with it and, and doing everything that you uh, that you needed to do. So. Um, uh, and once you get to the jets, you know, once you walk out, once you get into the cockpit, get your helmet on and stuff, actually all of that just just melted away. You know, you just focused on doing what you uh, what what you wanted to do or what you needed to do. You know, and that's a bit like any other sort of big exercise sortie. You know, sort of like making sure you're ready, you're ready to taxi on time or whatever, and you're not, you know, you're not the buffoon that's late or or, or doesn't get, you know, the radios up and running and stuff like that. So. So yeah, so very very much focused on the uh, on the task at hand and you know, and sort of getting airborne and you know pretty much straight up to the tanker to sort of refuel you know as we as we were going in. So our first target was Shiba Airfield, which is not far you know beyond the Kuwaiti border actually. But um, so it was a fairly sort of short transit. We needed some fuel from a uh, from from a Victor tanker. You know, who are our colleagues from Marham and. Um, and then you know very quickly into it. The um, it's really interesting the way that you described uh, just a few questions ago. You described that feeling of the excitement and going out there and just going out after Christmas. I've just been reading a book actually called No Empty Chairs, which is about World War One um, and the British Expeditionary Force going out to France and the squadrons as they grew out in France. But a lot of it is talking about. The feelings of the pilot and, and, and what they experienced and what you just said interestingly I, I really mirrored um you know that squadron camaraderie and all that sort of stuff mirrored what it said world war one book 
Um, and I think that, that squadron feeling um, ha- has just pervaded throughout time, hasn't it? Throughout the, the Royal Air Force's time. But so my, my next question was, the, the thing that it said in the book was, when the guys got out there, they were raring to go. They had that anxiety, of course, that you just described, but they wanted to get out and get the bit between their teeth and get out and do it. Did you have that feeling um, as you went on that first night? Yeah, I mean, I think when the inevitability that, that you know, this was not going to be solved in any other way, uh, then, then of course, you know, the route through to the other end is, is, is to go do it. And uh, I, I, I don't know about others, but I, you know, personally was uh, was hoping that there'd be a political set- settlement or whatever although you know it was it was pretty much inevitable that that was never going to happen but uh, you know when uh, when the sort of message came through loud and clear that that, that had all failed and the deadline had been given then um, you know then it was a case of like you know let's let's get on with it you know you're not you're not going to avoid this so um, yeah and I, and I, and I think you know, again, I, you point out, I think, something that's really important is that, you know, we operate as teams, whatever the size of that team is, whether it's, you know, whether it's a squadron or it's a it's a trooper or a platoon in the army or whatever it happens to be, or it's a ship in the Navy. You know, actually, the thing that draws you together is, the, is whatever your collective team is. You know, so not something that's so big that you can't relate to, but something where, you, you know, you know every single person. You know, you know everyone to your left and to your right and whatever. And I think for me, you know, in, in that, the most powerful thing, you know, with, with any doubts or anything that you might have had, but, but the most powerful thing, it sounds a little bit trite, but it's absolutely true, is, you know, forget about all the politics and the greater good of mankind and all of that. The thing that you desperately don't want to do is let your mates down. Mm. You know, you, you absolutely want, you know, them to be... You know, to hold you in great esteem and you to hold them in great esteem and stuff. And and that for me was even even actually, and I know we'll go on to speak about you know the time actually in captivity. But but that for me was one of the biggest drivers of anything is is you know being being one of the team. And you know we can look back in history to the history of the air force and had a you know a, a great privilege in you know in more recent times to meet some of the Second World War prisoners of war and whatever and. Even then, you go through training, or whatever, and you're given all the ethos training and stuff, and it sort of absorbs a little bit. But the thought of the thought of letting anybody down, you know, was a massive driver, and, and was always a massive driver through the rest of my career as well. I have to say. Uh, you so on that on that, Wado, you so you you know you mentioned what we're going to get on to uh, to talk about here. How many missions did you actually do before you get to the big night, and uh, and how did the big night go? Yeah, so it was a second mission, and and you know, so on the first mission, just to sort of you know finish off your original question, so you know about the AAA. So the first mission was an was you know a real eye opener. So as we coasted in, we were just met with a wall of AAA, and uh, and then in the tornado, you know, so you're flying on autopilot at night, and I just remember, you know, so I didn't let it navigate itself. I just used the heading bug. And I was just sort of weaving left and right, you know, through the sort of traces that I could see and stuff to get to the target and then go through the target. Sadly, on, on, the, on that mission, there's then a sort of huge explosion uh, just uh, just off in, you know, essentially in battle formation on us. And that was sadly the squadron commander, Nigel Allison, and his, and his navigator, Max Collier, uh, you know, sort of the, the explosion from their aeroplane. So they were killed in action on, on that particular mission. 
you know, we then just fly a, a little bit further. We get a, we see a missile launch at us. So, you know, we're avoiding that and stuff. And at the same time as our leaders avoiding it. So, you know, eventually when we go lights on, we're at the wrong side of each other. So we obviously crossed over each other during that maneuver as well. So God knows how close we were and stuff. So it, it was, you know, it's a, it was a, uh, a tragic uh, uh, a sortie, obviously, because we lost our uh, a, a squadron commander and, and Max Collier. It's a great colleague. But, you know, it was, it was also, you know, very eventful. It was, you know, incredibly sort of exciting from that perspective, you know. Been off hey, was, that a, was that a four-ship or, or an eight-ship? Yeah, that was a, that was a four-ship parky for, uh, for that one. And uh, we were the boys on that first raid. Wow. Yeah. yeah, and we were dropping JP two three three, so we had that sort of pleasure of flying directly over the airfield and stuff, you know, being shot at. And um, yeah, so that was uh, you know was if you like you know almost literally a baptism of fire, and uh, you know was 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 quite incredible. The second sortie, you know, to answer answer your other question because you you know God has never answered the question you actually asked me. So um, no, it's good, but I'm enjoying the way there though. <laughs> so, so the second sortie was entirely different. So the second sortie, you know, strap into the jets, we get going. Interestingly enough, I had a problem with um, there was no spare aircraft, and I had a problem with the aircraft in the the attention getters wouldn't go out. You know, okay, I'm pressing constantly, constantly, and they wouldn't go out. And eventually, you know, I say to the uh, to the ground crew, is there anything else I can do? And they say, well, at least they're actually. You, you're going to have to crew out. The only thing you could do is to take the bulbs out. So, you know, I had a quick conversation with Robbie or whatever, and said, okay, we'll take the bulbs out, you know, because we've still got the central warning panel and stuff. So we took the bulbs out of the attention getters and uh, and cracked on. So that was the start of it. But other than that, it was completely uneventful, up to the tanker. For once in my life, I get into the tanker first time, you know, no problem at all, and uh, descend off the tanker into low level, absolutely quite just like a you know a training source of training sortie basically no sign of any enemy activity whatsoever and as we accelerate i have to say i sort of remember this through you know the cockpit voice recorder and things like this because because actually you know after uh, after ejecting I, I lost my memory for about uh, two minutes or so you know up to i can remember exactly the shoot down bit but but my situational awareness, you know, I was about 25 miles out in terms of where I thought we were geographically. But but anyway, so, you know, as we come we come to the airfield, come to the target, we accelerate up. So, you know, we're doing 540, 540 knots, getting ready for a loft attack. Because in this case, having gone through the first sortie with all of the AAA, we were trying to do some suppression using 1,000 pounders before the back four, because we're now an H-ship, before the back four go through using JP-233. And, of course, they've got to fly over the effort. So the front four of us were lofting 1,000 pounders in, trying to keep heads down and stuff for uh, for the back four to go through. So we're just on the point of sort of pulling up. And and so the first real event of, not- notable event of the sortie is just seeing this effing great rocket sort of fired at me sort of from directly ahead. Yeah, and then the uh, the RHWR, so the radar homing and warning receiver, just starts going mad with all the alarms and stuff. And uh, you know, and, and obviously, you know, as you know, we have we now have a Roland sort of coming towards us, doing Mach three or whatever a Roland does, and you know, we're doing five forty knots towards it in a in a twenty eight ton tornado that doesn't, you know, at night with no NVGs and and you know that doesn't turn particularly beautifully. 
so unlike your your great typhoons that you get to fly now so uh, so yeah so so that's the situation we see ourselves in at, at, at that point wow uh, what sort of missile is is the roland so so jerry the the roland is a french missile and uh, and a very clever french missile which made it sort of difficult for us to detect and stuff when they were going through their sort of processes leading up to fire so that's why we had such a uh, such a late um a late warning on it so uh but it's uh, it's a short range uh radar guided um missile so uh, that was uh, that was used so the iraqis had uh, that uh, to to protect their bases basically which is sort of what it what it was doing you know so i can't can't really beef about what it was doing that's what it was there for and can you see this thing coming up at you yeah so you can see as I say you can see it fired so because the the engine burns you know very a very short burn yeah uh, i can't remember how long it is but you know no longer than a second or whatever to accelerate so you can see that very very bright in the night sky and then of course it you know that, that burns out so You've no idea. You've no idea where it is. Oh. But you can hear your warning sort of receiver sort of you know keep keep bleating at you that um, that it that is coming in mind. And do you remember it? Well, I mean, I was going to say, did it hit the aircraft? It might not have hit the aircraft. Actually, do, do you remember the 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 concussion of the hit? Yeah. So the um, so you're right. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't hit the aircraft. So yeah, again, at that stage, the only thing I can do is take manual control. So, so I'm now flying a tornado. I, I'm trying to do a, a break to the left, but got to imagine this is, you know, this it takes about three or four seconds, about four seconds, I think, from the missile firing to actually the explosion near the aeroplane. Because your, your, your question's bang on. Actually, it didn't. It didn't hit. It just exploded very close to to the aeroplane. So I'm trying to, you know, fly the aircraft to the left, but also as worried about flying into the ground, you know, which I'm definitely going to be killed as, as making sure as, you know, I do what I can to avoid this missile. And, uh, and I just remember this sort of a massive flash and, uh, and it just felt for, for me that I was pinned back in the seat. almost like, wow. you know, I had a sort of, you know, a huge gush of wind that, uh, that was, that was pinning me back in the seat. And um, and sure enough, it, it exploded so close that it hit the underside of the aeroplane, shattered the canopy. So you know, essentially, you know, one, one of my one of my sayings is, you know, it's now flying a, a six hundred mile an hour cabriolet. You know, through that, and just I, I just my last waking thought. I just remember trying to, well, not my last waking thought, but I just trying to trying to get my arms down towards the ejection handle and just not being able to move, and then losing consciousness. Yeah, and that 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 was it. So you know, at that moment in time, you know, I absolutely was one hundred percent sure that I was going to die, and um, you know, that 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 was it because I was just pinned, couldn't couldn't move at all. So, so sorry, to sound stupid. You you did eject. Did because in the back seat, Robbie, who I mentioned earlier. So in a tornado, he's protected a little bit by all the computer screens and stuff. Yeah. Um, and so he's still conscious. He realizes very quickly. So he, he had a uh, so there's a fire in the aeroplane where it had hit the hydraulics, and so he recalls there being a fire around his feet. Oh my word! And very quickly, sort of knowing that something's happened to me, and so he pulls his ejection handle, and because the command eject system, that ejects me out the front. So 
you know, but I, you know, lots of people ask me about what's it like to eject. I haven't got a clue. You know, I was unconscious before it ever started. I was unconscious through it, and 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 probably was unconscious for about twenty minutes on the grind as well. Oh my word! So, so, yeah, but you know that 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 fact saved my life. Uh, at least the attention getters didn't go off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was, but that would have, you know, you might. Wow. I wouldn't have been able to compute that, Parky, because that would have just been one more flash in, in a bunch of flashes. But That sensation, Dave, of you sort of passing out, you can, that feels like yesterday, I imagine. I bet that's that's kind of still with you. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's really interesting. So, I, I did a, um, I mean, through the years, obviously, you know, given lectures and stuff, and I, and I reckon that I've probably been asked every question that you could possibly be asked. But I did a... Uh, I did a charity thing at um, at the Petwood actually at Woodall Spa for um, for the Lincolnshire Bomber Command Memorial, and, and I spoke with Charles Clark. I mean, you know, I was Charles Clark. Charles Clark, for people who don't know, is a Second World War prisoner of war. He's, sadly, has passed away now, but he was the he was the chairman of the Bomber Command Memorial Association and Bomber Command Association eventually, and then. Uh, but also the chair of the Royal Air Force Ex-Prisoner War Association. So, so essentially, you know, I was Charles's warm-up act as he gave his story about Stalag Love 3 and stuff. So, uh, but a lady asked me a question there and uh, that I'd never been asked before, and it was interesting because she was saying, uh, you know, when I tell the story, is it like I'm actually telling a story now uh, or, or does it take me back there? And, and actually, to be honest, when I, when I do that, the only thing that takes me back there is actually the bit about the interrogations and this bit about, you know, the actual bit of be, about being shot down and stuff. And it's where, you know, whatever, I, I can't help but sort of go back to that moment. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, Dave, there, there is something I, I do have to ask you for, because, you know, those of us who know you, um, there's a little bit around the sort of the eyes where, you know, you've got some, uh, you know, a little bit of tattooing there. What... Just talk a little bit through what that is the legacy of. Yeah, so I mean, JB asked the question about um, about you know whether the missile hit or missed, and, and and the fact that it missed, but obviously it's, I can't remember the role. I think it's uh, it's not exploding rods; it has little tiny pellets. It's like bow ties, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, so, so so this this stuff as it as it you know as it exploded, and obviously the canopy was shattered, and I'm and I'm in a left hand turn, so trying to trying to you know. I think all right-handed pilots, you know, without thinking, will instinctively break to the left. So, you know, I sort of trying to break to the left. So on this side of my face, the left side of my face, I have quite clean scars because that's just where bits of chunk of, of um, visor and canopy sort of went into my face. And on the right-hand side, they're black. And they're black because they're tiny bits of rolling fragmentation, which, which of course, you know, don't get cleaned for six weeks you know seven weeks until i get you know until i get to cyprus eventually afterwards and uh, and so they cause the tattoos because they're called carbon tattoos so tiny fragments and I, and I even have a tiny fragment in my right eye oh, my word. which went which went through but it doesn't affect my vision you know i can't see it but you know of course if i tell this story to any optician or whatever i you know make sure i get the eye drops doubled and whatever as they try and search it and they Take great delight in telling me that it's still there. So yeah, I knew it's still there. I realised it hasn't come out, but now I can't see for a week. But uh, but yeah, so so the black stuff is um, is the carbon tattooing. 
So, um, I mean, it's faded now, but quite often, quite often, just afterwards, you know, I'd be doing something, and, and people very politely come up to me and say, say, you know, Wado or Dave or whatever, you know, do you know you've got pen all over your eye? <laughs> It's actually Roland Missile. It's a very long story, but it's not penny. It won't rub off. Can I ask, this is a, I don't know, I I think it is relevant. I don't know why it it occurred to me, but how many thousand pounders were you carrying? Because I think all of us that have flown aeroplanes know that that is a significant disadvantage to maneuvering the aeroplane and just so how many were you carrying to loft on in there so we were carrying five dunk you know i, I mean there was, there was a massive qi esoteric but i wasn't a qi at the time i became one later so i can i can whinge about them at this point but they there was a massive esoteric debate about whether eight was better than five but five was heavy enough and gave you a bit of a bit of an advantage so we were carrying five uh, because I guess you didn't have time to punch them off. You just tried to, to no, break. No, I mean it literally was. It was a it was a case of seeing the missile, shouting to 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 Robbie that there was a missile launch. You know, we knew we couldn't flare at night time because that would give our sort of you know visual our position away. So, you know, just shouted at him to to throw some chaff, and then you know, as a turn in the aeroplane, literally, you know, four seconds later, it's it's, it's bang. So. Uh, so yeah, no, no, no chance to sort of react in that way. Well, I guess you had so the you, wings back as well, didn't you? You'd have had the wings back, wouldn't you? So the wings were in forty-five at that stage, yeah. So you know, sixty-seven was was air show only. Okay. And, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, but yeah, and I can't remember whether we were flying big tanks or uh, or little tanks because that affected the wing sweep as well. But uh, but they were in forty-five. That was you know. So effectively, you, you'd have put you know ninety degrees of bank on and pulled, but kept going in the same direction. Well, not even not even that aggressively done because I say it was you know we're going from TFR and yeah. uh, and I say these days you know it's difficult to think but you know we had no EO sensors or MVG or whatever it's just inky black so you know taking it out trying to look at the uh, the, the, the little escape with the terrain following radar to sort of at least get some measure that the the grind is relatively flat and uh, and just rolling the aircraft and starting to pull so you know we're we're really only through I don't know. 10, 15, 20 degrees or so of turn before it hits. You know. Yeah. So, Thank you. you know, when, when people go through something like this, they often look back at it and think, goodness me, if only I'd have done X, Y, Z. Uh, do you look back at this and think there's absolutely nothing we could have done? Uh, and Unless you know they're going to fire that missile. Once that missile's in the air, there's nothing you could have done other, other than what you did? Or do you think back about it and think, yeah, actually, we could have come up with something? Well, it's sort of a, again, it's another really important point afterwards because we were fortunate to get the uh, to get the accident data recorder back. Oh wow! It was really important to understand what we what we did, or for me anyway, going back to what I said at the beginning in terms of not letting you make stuff and stuff, and you know, and clearly being responsible or potentially responsible for uh, for something that you know Robbie goes through with me as well. But uh, but just to sort of looking and understanding, so. What were the tactics of the time, and what we were supposed to do, and did I do that? And in essence, you know, the answer was the answer was yes. I mean, there's other stories about people, you know, being fired at uh, by a missile and barrel rolling it around it at night, you know, and recovering at 20 feet and stuff. And I sort of reconcile myself to that in terms of, 
well, that's just luck. You know, there's many really good aviators lost their lives because, you know, they lost an argument with the ground and, you know, you, you're sort of playing probabilities there. So, so, so did, did, did I do what the tactic said to do, which is in essence at, at the time were a, were a 2G break against a Roland. So, well, yes, you know, that's what we were, that's what we were sort of going towards. And again, there was stuff with the, uh, with the electronic warfare kit and RHWR and whatever, which meant that we didn't realize it at the time, but it didn't, it didn't quite perform as we thought it would perform against the Roland missile system. So, so you know, but it was really important to me to sort of understand, understand basically that I, that I hadn't, you know, screwed up. Uh, and, I, and I think if I'd have believed that, I wouldn't have gone back to flying fast jets. And, uh, yeah. and certainly I wouldn't, uh, I mean, God, God, God is the one to judge or whatever, but I wouldn't have felt that I had the legitimacy to then sort of move through the command structure and, and lead others. And, and again, it sounds a big sort of statement, but, you know, it was it was important to me. Yeah, so it's very interesting to say, you know, the, the tactic there was a 2G G break against a Roland. I, I wouldn't even know how you'd know it was a Roland. Yeah, well, so when it, once it starts alarming, it gives you an identification. So, and, and I clearly know in the past, you know, ah, we know it was a Roland. Yeah, but yeah. actually, also the intelligence in terms of the airfield, we knew we knew that there'd been an active Roland there a couple of days before the before we flew. So we knew that there was a fairly reasonable chance. Of course, we hoped it had been taken out, but we knew that there was a fairly reasonable chance that that there was an active Roland still on that airfield. So, uh, so yeah, it, it was no surprise that it was a Roland and not something else. So Dave, you you're uh, so you're asleep. Um, what does Robbie remember of the next bit? Is he uh, you know when he comes down on a shoot, is he frantically looking for you? Well, you know what's happening? Is he seeing World War Three going on around him? Yeah, so so Robbie, you know, and, and and obviously he's the best one to tell his story. But but Robbie, you know, as he ejects, uh, he's. Um, his leg is hit by the personal survival pack, the PSP, and uh, and it smashes his leg. So he's, it breaks his leg in three places. So he's on the ground now, drifting in and out of consciousness because of the pain in his leg. I mean, you know, the bones are the bones are out of the skin, you know. So uh, so he's in a he's in a bad way, and um, and so to Robbie, so we never get together. So I, I you know I I wake up. And I see some footprints nearby, and, and Robbie was the sort of survival expert of the squadron, you know. So, so I think you know Robbie's, and, I, and clearly, obviously, I suspect that he must have ejected us. So I, I'm thinking Robbie's in a better state, and he's come by, he's seen me and stuff. I'm unconscious; he can't do anything for me, uh, and therefore he started his evasion. But in reality, he was he was in and out of consciousness all night, and uh, with his with his leg badly broken, he's completely immobile. So, uh, so he's you know he's stuck on the ground and gets picked up the next day. And what about, and so what about you? You know, when when you wake up, is it still dark? Is uh, yeah. you know, are, are you seeing explosions behind you? You know, what's going on? So you got to realize now. So my my mental picture is I, I you know I I twenty miles away from 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 the you know from the base that we were attacking and stuff but I see triple A sort of coming up from from the base in the distance and can't really quite compute why it feels so close. But uh but I start my evasion. I mean I, I'm I'm completely you know you can imagine, you know, you've jumped out of an aeroplane at six hundred miles an hour, you know, you, you think you were dead before that even happened. So you're sort of wondering, well, hang on a minute, what's happening to me now? You know, why am I why am I here? 
and um, uh, and and my radios are all bust. You know, so my PLB is, is sort of bust. You know, the wires are hanging out. Or every sort of sachet of water that I'd stuffed around my pockets has been blown off by the ejection. So I have one sachet of water in my knee pad. That's the only thing that sort of survives and stuff. Uh, and, and both my arms are really badly dislocated. So, oh. so I managed to get this shoulder, my right shoulder, back into position. So that's got a bit of mobility. But my left elbow is so badly dislocated that I can't, can't get the, uh, the LSJ off my arm, you know, because it's, it's like stretched the arm bit tight. I can't get it over. So, um, so I'm a bit sort of screwed, you know. So, uh, uh, so I have to let go the parachute and I have to let go my PSP and stuff just to get away. And I just start evading into the night. But, uh, but you know, absolutely, you know, really sort of in quite sort of deep shock, really. Try on my PLB to sort of make some radio calls and stuff, but you know, I, I mean, that, no, no, nothing was ever received, nothing, nothing was ever heard. So that sort of w- was bust. It looked buster, but it was bust, and uh, and so evade and, and evade through the night basically until sort of the um, until uh, you know you can see light coming into the day and realise that you know I've got to try and find somewhere to hide out and stuff. So. Uh, so there's a couple of um, pipelines that run to the west of Talil. So we're, we're attacking the airbase at Talil. And so I try and make a sort of a shallow grave between these two pipelines or whatever to try and, uh, try and hide out. Uh, but, uh, I mean, to, to be honest, looking back, the best thing to do would probably have been to stay still, you know, because then you wouldn't leave a trace and stuff like that. And obviously you're in a sort of wide expanse of desert and stuff, and it probably would have been more difficult to find. But... Uh, uh, but obviously, you know, you know, sort of, that's not what you're taught, and you're not thinking that sort of quickly at that stage. So, uh, so yeah, and then uh, sort of as the next day breaks and comes up, you know, a few hours later, I'm uh, I'm obviously fined by the uh, by the Iraqis, and they take me into captivity. I mean, it's a stupid question, but are you, do you have a sense of how much trouble you're in at that at that point? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, you know. You know this isn't uh, this isn't going to be pleasant. You've almost conditioned yourself. You know, I, I, um, we, we we had these cards, and the, the cards were you know commonly known as ghoulie chips, and uh, and these were sort of cards to present over because we carry some gold coins to try and you know to try and bribe or whatever you know, people to help if you're in that situation. And uh, but we had these chips, you know, that said you know if you help this airman or whatever, you'll be generously rewarded and blah blah blah. But they were commonly known as ghoulie chips because, you know, in the Second World War, stuff, you know, for obvious reasons, people, you know, with these cards or whatever, but, you know, various parts of their anatomy had, uh, you know, not, not survived, you know, and this was the sort of colloquial story stuff. So you'd almost condition yourself that this was going to be horrendous. But the only thing, you know, but the only thing that I always say is actually when you sort of face with that situation, well, you know, the, the, altern- the only alternative is not to be there at all. Yeah. So... You know, you just got, almost got to take it minute by minute in terms of, you know, if you can survive the next five minutes, ten minutes, one day, one week or whatever, then, you know, there is a chance of coming out the other end of this. So, if you How have... hostile were those guards that yeah. captured you, those, those soldiers? So they, they, there was two of them initially, Parky, and they, uh, so they, they came towards me. And um, because of my arms, I hadn't even been able to. So we flew with a, with a pistols that... The, the weren't didn't have a magazine in them at the time. I mean, it sounds a bit ridiculous these days, but but we didn't have the sort of magazines in them because the idea was you you know you put the magazine and then you didn't have a didn't have the sort of a risk of an ND in the cockpit or anything like that. But uh, 
Um, but I, I wasn't able to do that because of my because uh, of my arms, because it was you know the pistol was tucked under a holster under my arm. So they they came towards me and um, there was uh, there was an older guy and a younger guy, and the younger guy was you know was was a bit energetic. The younger guy was uh, you know a bit emotional. The older guy was actually quite calm. So sort of the younger guy came. I mean, first of all, they they fired close to me as sort of warning shots, and then. They were gesticulating to put my arms above my head, which I couldn't do, yeah, because because you know not that I was trying to be belligerent, but I just couldn't do it. And um... if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So that sort of caused a bit of angst. And then the, the, the younger guy sort of came up eventually and, uh, you know, he, he, he gave me, you know, a, a, bit of a, a bit of a lashing and whatever, but there was calmed down by the, uh, by the older guy. And then you know, then, and then I was taken to where another group of them were and stuff. So, so yeah. But uh, but again, you, you know, I was keen to put this into perspective. And you know, I mean, it wasn't pleasant, it wasn't nice. But you look at some of the other stories, even in that stage, you know, what what happened to some of the U.S. prisoners of war and stuff. And uh, you know, people that that initial capture was uh, was pretty horrendous for some. So whereas for me, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't a pleasant Sunday afternoon stroll or whatever, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was, uh, it was horrendous. It was sort of, you know, about what I expected, really. And um, the people that captured you, did anything strike you about them in terms of like their? Did they, did they seem like a disciplined bunch? They seem like an organised unit. How did they come across? 
Uh, so semi semi disciplined, you know. They were obviously they, so they were dressed sort of in half military clothes and half civil clothes, and um, uh, you know, so they they were obviously sort of part of the organisation, you know. But um, um, but yeah, you know, they weren't you know ruthlessly military or disciplined or even you know particularly had a plan really. I think it was all a bit of a shock to them as well. So you know, I, I was taken. There was about eventually about seven of them. And they and they did a search of me and stuff and you know took my gold coins. I always wondered actually what you were supposed to do with gold coins because <laughs> take them. They're not they're not going to say, hang on a minute, no, you can't have them all now. You can just have one now. <laughs> the rest <laughs> take me to the other side of the border. But anyway, I never quite sussed that one out. But my gold coins went and uh, very quickly. So uh, so so yeah. So you know, I, I, difficult difficult to say. So uh, you know, there were. Um, what what about your medical care? Did, 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 did they look after you? Sorry. What about your medical care? Did they look after you? No, no, that, uh, no. At that stage, they were they were just more interested in finding out what they that, what they could. I mean, they weren't really they weren't asking me questions at that stage. They were just searching me, yeah. and um, and then get getting me sort of handed over to the sort of proper authorities, really, which uh, which came next. But who who were they, Dave? Who who was it? A group of soldiers that were actively looking for you, uh, or. I, I, I think they were more from the air base, Doug. So I think they were, you know, if you like, almost, uh, I don't know, whatever their sort of, you know, I wouldn't describe them as the equivalent of the regiment or whatever, but they were just people who were from the air base who were probably base security or something like that. But uh, but I don't think they were army per se. Right. Uh, but somehow linked to the uh, to the airfield itself. I'm sure you, I'm sure you would um, wish never to see these people ever again. But would you would you like to ask would you like to ask them any questions about that day? Well, I don't think. I mean, those people. Honestly, Jay, for for most of the Iraqis, you know, I would even though they were being unpleasant or whatever. I think um, the only ones that I you know that I have a real problem with are, are the ones that were um, inhumane mm. or inhumane sake. So you know, the, the, these guys, you've got to think of in terms of well, what if they'd done something different? You know. What if they treated me really nicely? How, how, what effect would that have had on them? You know, how that would that, you know, that just wouldn't wouldn't be feasible for or credible for them to act in that way. So, I really don't hold anything against them, or indeed you know, anything against you know the, the, the sort of Roland operators or whatever. They were they were doing what they were expected to do, and probably had they not, you know, they uh, they would have met a fairly a fairly uh, unpleasant fate. So, so the only ones who they're all experienced. Um, that, that I would have a real angst about uh, are actually much later in sort of Baghdad and the Bath Party. And the ones yeah. just with me, but with other people, were just in a sort of a position of ultimate authority and and actually sort of enjoyed just abusing that for the sake of it. Uh, so they're, they're the ones that I would have a real, you know, real issue with. But for those, you know, who... Who picked me up there and stuff? I mean, I'd love to ask them about what they were thinking and, you know, what, what, what you know, what, what their plans were, what they'd been asked to do and stuff, what they felt about the, the whole the whole war and what was happening to their airfield and stuff. But, uh, uh, but yeah. So, you know, what, I, what were you thinking at the time? You know, I think that was sort of you know almost expected. What What were you thinking at the time? What, were you relieved because you only had one pack of water? I mean, was it? I mean, survival in, out there. I guess it's difficult for me to imagine exactly where you were, but I guess just in the desert there, surviving through the day would have been 
emotional. Yeah, I just thought that, you know, I, I mean, obviously being in captivity, you know, sort of, you know, drew down one potential avenue of rescue, which the, even though I couldn't make sort of contact, I was sort of hoping that somehow, some, somehow, you know, people would be sort of tracking and understand and maybe, you know, a, a rescue mission or something that, you know, could come in and stuff. But uh, um, so, so that closed down any, any sort of avenue of escape. Uh, and then it was really a sort of focus on, you know, what's going to happen to me next and, and am I going to be able to survive it or indeed am I going to be allowed to survive it? So so that was, you know, the, the overwhelming fear then of of what comes next. And where, so where did you get taken? So once you captured, did they put you in a vehicle and take you back off um, somewhere yeah, else? They put me in a vehicle and eventually I ended up in, uh, in the town of Al-Nazira in uh, into a sort of a military compound who, uh, you know, I think was the Republican Guard because, you know, I was, I was then blindfolded, uh, but, I, you know, you could glimpse stuff out of the blindfold. And, uh, you know, I think they were wearing very distinctive sort of, you know, ready orange berets and stuff. And, um, I mean, the atmosphere, you know, was like a lynch mob. You know, there's lots of people I could tell. There were lots of people around the, around the Land River, whatever it was that uh, the Jeep, that uh, as it was pulled out of this and, you know, absolutely sort of wondered what what on earth was going to happen next. And I was, you know, pretty unceremoniously sort of dragged into a room or whatever, and which I guess was some sort of one of their senior leaders. And they, you know, they, they spoke to each other in Arabic, so I had no idea what they said. And But then surprisingly, I was put back into the vehicle and uh, and driven away uh, to, to the local hospital initially. Um, so, you know, that was a bit disorientating because you just didn't know what was going to happen. But uh, but but driven into the local hospital, and I mean, I, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a it's a long long story to do the sort of full story, but you know, pick the uh, pick the, the the bits out of it. But uh, but at the at the hospital, so it's handed over to the medics, and they, you know, I had bunches, you know, chunks of stuff in my face and whatever. Both my arms were badly dislocated, as uh, as I mentioned and stuff. And they were, I was on a table, and they were picking stuff, you know, just pulling stuff out of my face, and. Um, and also then one of the guys, so they they, they asked one of the uh, the guards about um, uh, about you know painkillers and stuff, and, uh, and and he sort of refused me to to have any painkillers or anything. So sort of picking this stuff out was bloody painful. And then and then they relocated my elbow, but they literally just got the knee up against the elbow oh. and levered it back into uh, back into place. So you know, which was a little bit painful. And at that point, you know, I sort of squeaked. just a little bit. Yeah, I just screamed out a bit or whatever, you know. And uh, and this, I remember this, this sort of this Iraqi just sort of leaned over. He said to me, "Be a man." <laughs> <laughs> so okay, well, sorry, but uh, but yeah. And then uh, and then from there, I was sort of you know taken taken back to the airbase, taken back to Al Talil, and uh, and the first interrogation, which was uh, which was with the aircrew, uh, which was you know, uh, I mean, if we've got time. You know, it's an interesting because this is about you know pilot episodes and stuff. So, so, so neither was a real case of a, you know, I was going to call it a fraternity. That'd be the wrong word these days, wouldn't it? But, uh, but you know, a sort of a, a collective spirit because, you know, I, I was taken into this sort of room with the air crew, and the the first thing they said to me, so they sort of lifted a blindfold, and um, the first thing they said to me was, "We're not going to hurt you." And uh, and then they sort of you know, I didn't like do introductions, but they, but they said, "Oh, look, Mr. David, 
you know, this uh, this guy here, he was a prisoner of war in the um, in the Iran war. You know, we know what you're going through, blah, blah, blah. We're going to ask you some questions, but we're not going to hurt you. And uh, and so they started asking me the sort of questions and obviously name, rank, number, date of birth. And then, you know, I can't answer that question. And uh, there was never any sense of, you know, any sort of threat of violence or anything there. Uh, and then eventually I was taken to who I assume was their base commander's office. And again, you know, they gave me some food, you know, a really nicely set out plate of food and stuff. And, you know, he asked me some questions and stuff and, uh, you know, I can't answer those questions. Said, uh, Mr. David, if if you don't, an if you answer the questions, we'll look after you here. If you don't answer the questions, I'm going to have to send you to Baghdad and there they will make you answer the questions. It comes back to one of the points about, you know, saying before about not letting the team down and stuff like that. Oh. It was incredibly tempting to sort of take him up at his at his words. But I just knew it was the wrong thing to do. And for, and also I knew that it, you know, it was a it was an empty promise as well. But it but it was just the wrong thing to do. Oh I'm interested. What was can I, I can't can I answer your questions? And he just said, well like what were the questions? To to Sorry JB. What were the questions? So <clears throat> name, rank, number, date of birth, which are questions that we can answer. And yeah. then it was, you know, what, what aircraft do you fly? That was always the first question. Ah. That question. So, uh, so, so that was it. So I, mean, I, I was they... put, in a, uh, put in a, you know, another vehicle and, and driven however many hours up to, uh, up to Baghdad. So I guess this is the broader question, not necessarily just for you, but um, I mean, it's obvious what aircraft you fly because it's on the ground somewhere. I mean, why couldn't you answer that? It, the, because it's it's essentially the start then of a dialogue, JP. I think is the uh, is the argument behind it. And and once you go through that, where where do you stop? And but it, it does become very important sort of later in the story. So, uh, um, but it is you know once once you once you've broken that threshold, and it and it, be, it was a very big moment because eventually I did. But um, but once you once you've broken that threshold, it, it's another sort of gate that you've gone through. Yeah. And which you know you're not you, you you know you're not supposed to you know we had our policy and stuff and you know I won't go into details of stuff or I you know the, the, the policy and has how it's changed because I guess that's still pretty sensitive goddess but but you know it was one of those things that you know what you do in the captivity is name rank date of birth and you give no further information so how long can you stick with that so so it's a sort of big question but what's a realistic amount of time that the RAF expect you to stick with that. Because it can't be forever. Well, you, I say we're we're straight now into sort of slightly sensitive areas. So I, you know, I won't I won't talk about what is what the current expectations or policy is. But uh, but but at the time it was a straight sort of black and white, you know, nothing further. So uh, so you know, somewhat unrealistically, obviously. But um, but that was what the uh, what the policy was. So and and, and so. Uh... When you arrived in Baghdad, did you get moved around or did you get immediately taken to the place that you would spend a little bit of time? <clears throat> no, so you, you immediately go to the interrogation centre, uh, which uh, I, I don't know where it was. But but on the way, going back to, you know, this whole experience and giving it balance. So so on the way, the uh, at the hospital, they put a uh, they put a plaster cast onto my arm after they sort of relocated my elbow. And it, and it was too tight on my arm. It was cutting off the blood supply becoming really painful. So they, they stopped at a, at a little medical facility, you know, I don't know, an hour outside of Baghdad or something. And uh, and this, this place was run by a woman. Uh, you know, the, the, 
she was in charge and stuff and and she sort of relieved the pressure on my uh, on my arm but unbeknownst to sort of me at the time i didn't realize what she was doing but uh, but also unseen by the iraqi captors she put a load of painkillers into my pocket and she she whispered into my ear for when you need them and and because she knew what was going to happen to me oh, God. and um and this was, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a tremendously courageous bit of humanity, I think, in terms of that whole experience and stuff. And I, you know, I think it's important, you know, that I'm mean, sure we're not naive enough, but it's important not to colour all Iraqis by, by mm. what you know, one or two sort of bad ones do. So I, I mean, that was just, it was just phenomenal. And that's uh, amazing that you know, given that she can't have been expecting you, I guess. No, no. So just. Um, yeah, just uh, just just incredible, you know. And right. I, was, Have you managed to find her? No, 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 no idea. And and it actually, for a while, it was sort of, you know, I didn't really want to speak about it because I didn't want to put her at risk, you know, whilst the sort of regime was still in place and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, so yeah, so I arrived at the interrogation centre, and you know, it was pretty much sort of straight into into the interrogations or whatever, blindfolded, name, rank, number, date of birth. You know, what aircraft do you fly? I cannot answer that question. And then you know the the beating started. So you know not not to labour the sort of beatings bit, but um, but yeah, you're, you're then faced with. So this is now a shock. You know, you're now a Westerner in in, in all of the comforts of the Western world and stuff. And 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 you know you know being beaten up by some brutes who are doing it because they're supposed to be doing it. You know that's their job. And uh, and and you know, sort of thinking, how, how long can I, how long can I take this? You know, this is now completely disorientating. People are really hurting me, and and the beatings, I mean, you're probably too young, but Barkey and I will remember. You know, the sort of the old Cold War stuff of, you know, sort of the beatings starting, but then you know gradually ramping up and getting a bit more severe. There was none of that. It was absolutely full on until until I was unconscious. And then they sort of bring me back round again. Name, rank, number, date of birth. What aircraft do you fly? I cannot answer that question. And then just start, just starting again. So, you know, but uh, but the interrogations, you know, from from pilot stories and stuff. The interrogations, you know, we we, we sort of spoke spoken about it in lectures and things like that. And I think it's sort of fairly uh, fairly well documented. So I think the you know the important thing there is for me anyway is you know what's going through your mind and. And again, it's this point of, right, okay, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to survive this forever. I'm pretty sure I'm not strong enough to go to my grave and not tell, because I'm not going to tell them that I flew the tornado. But how long can I last? You know, how, how long is good enough? You know, how long can I carry on for and stuff until, you know, to, to, to make sure, again, I'm, you know, not letting down the team or whatever. And of course, in a cold light day or whatever, no one would blame anybody for doing anything. But it's still that uh, it's still that sort of driver. So again, I, I'm sorry for the parade of ridiculous questions, but um, when I think of physical, um, uh, you know, a, a physical beating and why it is so scary, it's because of the unknown amount of damage it, it's going to do. That's sort of the that's the great unknown. You don't know how hurt or how badly damaged that you'll get. But at this point, you've got dislocated elbows, dislocated shoulders. You've already beaten been beaten unconscious once. Uh, presumably, you've got other great, uh, you know, other traumas. 
are the beatings in any way getting any easier? Or are you getting tougher or more resilient to it? I don't know whether tougher or resilient. Yeah. I think I think you know there was a realization that essentially the sooner I went unconscious, the better. Yeah. Because that was sort of the end of that particular episode. So certainly you know welcoming it rather than fighting it. I, I think it's sort of beyond at that stage worrying about you know permanent damage and stuff like that. Just sort of you know trying trying to survive it really. Um, and and you know point out sort of you know so I had a cast on my arm, but. That didn't stop them, you know, whacking my arm and stuff. But, you know, of course, that wasn't particularly painful because I had the cast protecting it, you know. <laughs> so and, and the reason I raise that is because it, it was, you know, not systematic. You know, we all think of these torturers with, the, you know, with the pliers and stuff like that and very scientific and precise or whatever. Ultimately, this was just a bit of a frenzied beating by, you know, by some Bath Party henchmen, basically. So... You know, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't the sort of scientific type interrogations that you that you might have expected, or the sort of tortures or whatever that you see in movies. You know, this was just right. Okay, you're not answering this question. We're not going to lay into you in any way that we can think of for the next few minutes. And uh, and, and, and was there a, a sort of gap, Dave? And was there any time you were sort of back in your cell that you could use those painkillers? Yeah. So so the painkillers part. I mean, it's, it's a really really important part of this story. Is so the interrogations eventually stopped for, uh, for, for you know, a break, and I, I find myself in this corridor, and and I, and I come to you, and I'm lying on some other pilot's boots. I'm, I, don't, I don't know who it was to this day, but I know they were American because, of course, we, you know we used to we used to cherish the American flying boots and flying kit and whatever. And I was just coming to lying on this this pair of boots and stuff, and um, I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself, and remember the painkiller. A few painkillers and stuff, you know, to to take the worst of it off, and then after a certain time, I sort of get dragged in for a uh, for another interrogation. So the painkillers, the painkillers uh, helps, but you know more than that. Actually, what what the, the real significance of the painkillers is ultimately, you know, eventually, sort of through these beatings, and and they uh, at one point, so they lift up my blindfold. So at one point, they 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 tell me that you know they've got the two Johns and stuff, and they'll bring the two Johns in because, um, you know they 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 they've already got their answers. So why 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 am I not answering them and stuff? You know, and so they go through that bit and sort of refuse, can't answer that question, can't answer that question. They eventually sort of uh, lift up my blindfold, and um, and underneath me, obviously from from the original search and stuff, one thing that has survived is my flight reference cards. And my flight reference cards have Flight Lieutenant DJ Waddington, Tornado GR1. And <laughs> but they're now presenting those in front of me, you know, having just taken a beating and then sort of name, rank, number, date of birth, what aircraft do you fly? You know, it's like Tornado GR1. You know, at that point it was like, yeah. you know, what, what, what's the point? Okay, you've got me, checkmate. And, um, and that was a, a really, really difficult moment, but also, also the almost the start of the recovery because it was difficult. Because you know, you got to imagine you're going back to the beginning. You know, I'm the, I'm the youngest pilot. You know, gone out there or whatever. But I find myself dumped on the desert floor in mission number two and stuff. You know, and I'm going through this sort of stuff. I'm trying to resist interrogation, and now I'm not resisting interrogation. You know, they've they've beaten it out of me, and I've just answered their question. So, so for me, that that was the lowest point. But almost immediately, the two things happen. One is that you've got to quickly decide, actually. So, okay, 
if I'm not going to die because of, of, by protecting the information that I fly Tornado GR1, what am I prepared to die for? What, what if they ask me something that I really can't answer? And one of the things, and I, I won't go, I won't go through the others, because again, you know, I don't want to, don't want to get any future interrogator any hints or tips or whatever. But, <laughs> but one, of, one of the things was, what if they asked me about paintings? You know, what, what if they, what if they find them and they ask me, where did I get them? What am I going to say? And and so at that moment, so you know, along with you know a few other things, I resolved that I will never tell them where I got those painkillers even if I alive because of it, because I could never live with myself if something happened to that person, because I haven't been strong enough to to uh, to, uh, to resist that. Fortunately, fortunately, it never happens, but uh, but it but it is yeah, it makes you decide. And the other thing is like okay, so you know, you get a grip. How are you going to fight back? And um, and again, I don't want to go into sort of too many details, but that's where. You know, that's where essentially we, 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 we play strategy, we play tactics. You know, what am I going to tell them? What am I going to tell them but not tell them everything? What am I going to tell them that's, uh, that's, you know, downright untruthful to try and mislead them? And so that's the game we play. And on one time I get caught out doing that and, uh, and, uh, and, and you know, they teach me a lesson not to do that again. But I know it was something stupid about, you know, how much fuel the tornado carries or something like that, which they knew the answer to and knew I was completely... I was completely bullshitting, but uh, but yeah. So they uh, you know they make an example of that particular case, oh, and then it's you know they uh, they sort of somehow have got through their list of questions, not particularly insightful or or whatever, and and that's it. That's, I mean, that's sort of my next question, which was, what do you think they were trying to get out of you? Like, what was the, what do you think they'd have been happy with to go back to their commander with? I, I honestly think that they had a list of questions. And uh, you know, I don't think they had a sort of a bigger picture or the ability to vary and try and find out you know, things that might have been more useful to them. You know, I think they had you know, question one to twenty or whatever it was, and um, and then when they got to the bottom of the list, that you know that level, they were they were happy they'd done their job. They, uh, so I don't, there wasn't you know, it's, there was any sort of particular sort of grand strategy that sat, sat behind it. I don't think so. I think they were just, you know, asking fairly obvious questions, really. And so, you, so you don't sorry. feel that they um, that they were trying to find out something that would strategically help them in what was coming or to come? I don't, I don't think at that stage, at that level, with the people who were, who were, you know, doing the interrogations, they knew enough to know what to ask. Yeah, so and again, it sort of comes back to the, the, the games being played. But you know, one of the things that one of the things, and I don't, I don't really want to sort of go into much detail. But you know, going back to being you know one of the youngest and most inexperienced in the Gulf, you know, I I, I could hide because I knew in their culture or whatever was obviously a very seniority and hierarchical sort of led, and and I could hide behind the fact that they it was entirely believable to them when I said, look, I you know I'm only I'm only 24, you know. I I don't know any of that stuff. Nobody tells me that stuff, you know. And that, so that sort of stuff was 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 entirely acceptable to them. Even though, as an insatiably curious, you know, QI wannabe, you know, I actually wanted to know everything that was uh, that was that was going on. So uh, so yeah. Do you think you've... So, uh, you know, it was uh, it was a bit agricultural, really? But 
but you know, non- nonetheless, that was you know thankful, thankful when it ended. Do you think you'd have resisted less um, resolutely had you been older? I'm not sure that would have made a difference, JB. I think you know other people grew drew strength from different things, whether that's you know family, children. You know, I mean, I, I remember having this conversation, and one of the things that I thought was, you know, if if you were there in that situation with children, yeah, that must have been a massive concern and a worry. And of course, it was. But equally, it was also a, you know a great sense of strength in in terms of you know I remember having this conversation with Robbie and uh, one of the American <clears throat> prisoners of war, a guy called Guy Hunter. Um, and, um, you know, their, their sort of point of view on that was that they uh, they had family to leave behind. You know, their lives meant something. You know, I, I was still the sort of single bachelor who, you know, was just flying airplanes and stuff, and that, that was my life, you know. So so people people drew different things from it and stuff and drew strength from uh, from, from different areas really. Had you kind of lost track of time whilst you were in there or were you kind of aware of how long it had been? So no, no, not at that stage, James. I sort of knew you know, knew knew the days and was pretty accurate. But later on uh, and you know again <clears throat> sort of, you know, zipping, zipping through the story a little bit. But later on, I was held in solitary confinement in a cell which was pitch black. So for three three weeks, I was in a cell, solitary confinement, pretty much pitch black. The only light I ever got was if they opened the hatch or whatever to, to give me some food or for whatever reason. Uh, and then sometimes there was a tiny crack where there was a water pipe that came out of the wall. There was a tiny crack, and sometimes I sort of looked at it, and it was, obviously indirect light anyway but you know sometimes it looked a little bit lighter or darker or whatever but but during that period because it was pitch black the main way that i kept my calendar was by the air raids because i knew the air raids happened at night oh my word. the sequence of air raids close together and then a long gap i knew that was a day but actually during the war there was a, there was a period of three days when um there was a ceasefire whilst they tried to negotiate a peace settlement. And I, and I think the, the sort of Russian Russian president was involved in that, Gorbachev and stuff. And there was a there, there was that process where there were no air raids for three days. When eventually I came out of that, I was three days out in my mental calendar because, <laughs> you know, I just had no way of, you know, cause no way of, 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 of marking time. Nothing at all. Absolutely, you know, I say that was and that was really difficult. Mentally, that was really difficult to be in that. So what? What um, so just to, to step back again. So you said you'd answered the questions and the beating stopped, and then you've you've mentioned that solitary confinement. So my my question was: so once the beatings had stopped, clearly you'd taken a pasting already from not answering the questions. But after that point, did you not get did you not get physically tortured again? So not not routinely. Type. So there was uh, there was one occasion you know which was uh, which was a sort of a bit of a beating and and other sort of you know smaller occasions where you'd uh, you know we just get a bit of sort of physical treatment and stuff but uh, but there were no more sort of of that you know what what could be described as torture in terms of interrogations and stuff so so, so that that was uh, you know that was it for, uh, for that what why so, did they so, put you into why did they put you into solitary confinement then what was 
it's good, you know, that's, I don't know. Well, well, first of all, I do know in that, in that we were taken to the, um, that's a good answer, isn't it? I don't know, I do know. But um, we were taken to what was the Bath Party Intelligence Headquarters, which was this high security facility. And there were also actually sort of three bunkers, which eventually get blown up. But uh, but we were taken to this facility and all of, all of, we were all put into solitary confinement. But as far as I know, I was the only one that didn't uh, that didn't have any light, and uh, and I think it was just bad luck. So you know, for many many years, I thought I'd been singled out for whatever reason for for bad treatment. But actually, fairly recently, I mean, literally only a a, a, a couple of years ago, sort of found out that um, in effect, what had happened is is the building that had been having some work done on it. And there was a and the tarpaulin had sort of fallen over and actually was blanking out you know any light going into my cell because I was at the end of the corridor. So everybody else had a window and and the guys will talk about you know you staring out over the window in the window and watching the air raids over Baghdad and stuff. And I could never work out why you know why I was singled out. And I, and I think it was just Unlucky. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think there was any rhyme or reason to, but I even find that out. Hey, so what? The um, you know, you, you mentioned other people, and you mentioned a pair of boots. When was the first contact you actually had with with anyone else who was in the same predicament as you? So the first, uh, the first uh, real contact. So, well, again, there's lots of bits of the story, but there, there was one point. So after the interrogations, you know, very quickly. I get taken to a hospital. They operate on my elbow under a general anaesthetic, you know, which is interesting in itself, wondering whether you're ever going to wake up. But they operate under a general anaesthetic onto my elbow. And then after that, I'm taken to another prison where, where the rest of the sort of prisoners are all right. I'm placed in a cell next to this guy called Guy Hunter. And at night, we, so we're in solitary confinement, but at night we're sort of whispering to each other, you know, sort of almost leaning up against the door or whatever. But we're only there for, um, I think, one or I'm only there for one night. And then we're moved into this Bath Party intelligence headquarters and where we go to solitary confinement. And then there's no way of communicating with anybody at all. So, you know, that's back into solitary confinement for several weeks. Eventually, that prison or the prison complex gets bombed. I think it's the 23rd of February. It gets hit by a raid by a couple of 117s who take out the bunkers that are part of the complex and half of the building that we're in falls down as well. Not the half that we're, st- that we're in, fortunately. So, you know, pretty sure that all of the prisoners of war, allied prisoners of war are accounted for. Remembering that there are Iraqi prisoners in the prison as well. So, you know, they're not all accounted for. And some of the guards are killed in that as well. But uh, but as far as we know, all of the allied P- POWs, you know, were, were, were okay and got out of that. Um, and so they, they then that night have to move us into the prison that becomes famous many years later because of, you know, mistreatment. So they move us to Abu Ghraib and, uh, and we're in, we're in a cell in Abu Ghraib, but at this point we're five or six to a cell for, uh, for one night, which is wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. You know, until, until at one point, actually, you know, sort of after several hours of listening to John Nickel, we have to tell him to be quiet and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, 
but yeah, so you know, and everyone's swapping all these stories or whatever, and and that's that's suddenly where I it dawns on me because until that moment, I thought everybody else is in the same conditions. So it's only then that I realised that everybody else has had a window. So no, you know, nobody else has been in the pitch black for three weeks, and and also been at the end of the corridor. You know, the food had generally run out by the time it got to me and a and a US guy called Jeff Tice. Who, uh, you know, we were right at the end, and Mohammed, who was a Kuwaiti pilot, we were right at the end of the corridor. So often there was none left by the time he got to us or whatever. So, uh, so, and and also the other big thing is, you know, most of the others are still in their flying suits, and I'm in a dish dash that has been given to me at the hospital. So, you know, I have no shoes, just a dish dash. You know, and everyone else has got their flying boots and. Um, and and, uh, and flying suits and stuff, you know. And I, so yeah, it was, uh, you know, again, it was a case of feeling a little bit sorry for myself and stuff. And uh, and Robbie, bless him. So at Abu Ghraib, the head of the prison or somebody came round and he gave us dates and hot tea, which was fantastic, you know. And sort of, sort of starving or whatever, and and some pita bread, you know. And uh, and Robbie, bless him, sort of had a half of his pita bread and stuff, and then and then gave me the other half of his pita bread because you know. You had these stories, and uh, you know, you realise what a sort of hard time we've still been having at the end of the corridor and stuff. So, uh, so bless him, you know, he sort of shared his shared his food and uh, uh, on on that day. But it was fantastic to be together for you know for for one night, five or six of us. And Mohammed, the Kuwaiti pilot, was with us, and um, he was able to translate, you know, what had been being said on the Iraqi radio because, of course, we couldn't understand it. You know, they used to play this radio in the in the Black House Intelligence headquarters, I've got no idea what was happening. So, uh, so yeah, it was fantastic to have that that contact because after an experience like that, people people need to speak about it and they need to speak about it to others who can who can understand what they've been through. So, so that was wonderful for one night. And so, so there's not much left of captivity after that point. If you're talking sort of middle of February, if if yeah. you end up being released around the the March time, so. Yeah, you know, so, did it ease? Did it ease off at that point? Does it start getting a little yeah, bit easier? Yeah, it, it, well, it's sort of easier in many ways and and harder in others. So you know, at that point, at that point I develop uh, gastroenteritis. So uh, which is you know which is difficult when you're when you're locked in a cell all day. You know, and you're allowed out to go to the loo once a day and stuff. So uh, so that's a little bit tricky. But that's a different story. And. Um, uh, and then other, you know, John, John Nichols sort of, you know, takes a real severe beating there for trying to speak to the Iraqi or signal the Iraqi prisoners that are sort of across the courtyard and a few other things happen in that. So it doesn't it doesn't get easy, but it, it, it gets a little bit easier for me in terms of not being in, not well, we're back in solitary confinement, but not being in the dark, you know, sort of think that, you know, I can survive this night for a period where I, I you know, really questioned how long I could survive in solitary confinement, in a tiny cell in the dark for, you know, however long without going mad. So, yeah, and um, and then eventually we're taken to a military prison, prison and um, uh, which is where we're released from. And then the sort of the morning of, of release, you know, this guy comes round to the cell and, um, and says, you know, Mr. David, the war is over. We can be friends now. You're going home. And, and shortly after that, um, I get delivered the sort of yellow suits that we were all released in. So for me, that's fantastic because I haven't had any clothes until that point. You know, for the others, obviously, that's the point they lose their flying suits and stuff and get put in a yellow suit. 
but uh, but yeah, and uh, and then that was you know the point was, well, can we believe this? What is really going to happen to us and stuff? So, uh, but but sure enough, yeah, it was uh, it was a genuine release. We get handed over to the Red Cross, and then uh, and then from there, fly home. Wow. What was the what was the Red Cross reception? Uh, how did they sort of greet you and look after you? So, so we were handed over into the Novo Hotel in in Baghdad, and and the Red Cross obviously were doing the best that they could, but clearly there's no sort of protection and stuff. And you know, well, one of the you know, the guy who's now known as Andy McNabb or whatever, you know, we're sort of chewing chewing the cut a little bit with uh, with him, and you know, he points out that there's nothing that we can do if they decide to come and take us back into captivity. You know, so not not to put a damper on things, but just to put a bit of realism on things. And uh, and the Red Cross then delivers some food. And basically the only thing they could they could rustle up was some beer, interestingly enough, some eggs and some chocolate. So and um Rhonda Cornham, who was the medic who was shot down in a black hawk. Uh, she was a major at the time, and uh, and she warned us against, you know, drinking beer or eating chocolate or eggs or whatever because our, because because we wouldn't be able to cope with it. But of course, you know, we couldn't resist the temptation. So so uh, so one might say the atmosphere turned green and could be cut with, <laughs> but uh, but you know, it was, it was it was great to you know have uh, have a little bit of a uh, bit of comfort in in that. And then we were supposed to be released. And we were supposed to be taken out to the airport that night, but that gets delayed by a day. So now we're sort of thinking about, well, what's really going on here? Because the weather wasn't wasn't great, um, which was, you know, justifiable and turned out to be the, the, the legitimate reason. But, you know, sort of worried about whether, you know, actually this is going to happen or not. So it was, uh, you know, great to, uh, to actually get on the aeroplane. And, you know, the feeling as it lifts off from the tarmac, you know, Swiss Air, the aeroplane's, leased by the Red Cross or whoever, uh, you know, as, as these aeroplanes get airborne from Baghdad was just amazing. And, and literally, we must have been, I don't know, 100 feet. And, uh, and I think it was a couple of F-15s or whatever come up onto the wing to escort us out there. And then, you know, soon after, there was uh, there was some F-3s that came up as well. Just, uh, just fantastic. Oh, wow. Um, who did your squadron send to meet you? So they sent, I, it's really interesting and very sad, actually. So there was some confusion about who was alive and who, was, who, who, who wasn't. Oh. Um, and so they sent people who could recognize people as they came off the aeroplane. So for, uh, for myself and Robbie, there was uh, two guys, a guy called Frank Waddington, no relation, uh, but he was one of, the, uh, one of the squadron leaders or whatever, and a guy called Mark Rudder. Who, who were our sort of greeters, you know, off uh, off the aircraft, and, and I always felt a little bit sorry for them actually, because um, you know, of course, they'd been through the war, they'd done all of it and stuff, and um, you know, but but actually now they were they were just lost because obviously all of the focus was on the prisoners of war and stuff, you know, and uh, and their stories, and I think still actually many of the stories about you know people who'd done the thirty odd missions and stuff by that stage through the war is is often. He's often sort of uh, in the shadows of the stories about the about what happened to us as POWs, but I, you know, I think it's I think it's an important thing. You know, I mean, I'd farther rather later on in my career, obviously, I go do the QI course and got his daily brief summary, but you know, I'd far rather be sort of you know one of the ones that did thirty odd missions and stuff than than you know a prisoner of war. So mm. 
you know you take strength from whatever happens to you and stuff but uh, but I, you know i do say that you know we we, we were a small part of it and uh, but we got you know we got exponentially more focus and attention than, than than anybody else understandably so but but you know we shouldn't forget that uh, that people had their own battles you know flying 30 odd missions and stuff can i ask this um we had john bell on um who flew for 617 squadron and when i listened to his story one of the things which struck me was the commanding officers who were on the ground every day were just sending lads out. Well, I say just sending, I didn't mean it um, in that way, but they were giving lads orders to go and do things knowing that they probably wouldn't that they probably wouldn't return. Given your experience, did that change how you thought about commands that you gave and jobs that you gave the lads, uh, missions, and, uh, missions and so forth? I think... You know, so so you're there for a purpose, and and you know we're we're all volunteers, and you sign up, and you know that it's going to be risky. Even, even training is risky. You know, you know, hopefully not James, but the rest of us on this call would have lost good friends through training accidents and things. You know, through our, our careers. So so you know that you know, and we and we all do it because you know we we sort of love that excitement and stuff, and uh, and and accepted the risk, and that's the same when you go on operations as well. So the first thing is we're all volunteers. So, but uh, but I think the thing that it did really drive home for me, and again going going back to sort of the beginning of what we spoke about here, was that um, you know I always wanted as a force commander or a squadron commander or whatever to make sure that anybody who was going to go into harm's way uh, was as best prepared as we reasonably could make them. Mm. So you, we we couldn't spend many or whatever getting better equipment and stuff i mean there was a whole process to try and do that and whatever but we couldn't suddenly magic up a few billion to, to have a bit of better kit here or there or whatever but with what we had and, and the constraints that we were under just making sure that uh that people were as best prepared as possible so you know if, if they hadn't had the exposure to the training that they needed we'll send somebody else you know, so we were a big force, we were a big community or whatever. So, you know, unless it was absolutely critical. So so just doing, you know, the, the, the small bit that I could to, to, to make sure that that was done. And, you know, of course, I, I didn't do that in later life, didn't do that sort of hands-on stuff. That was all done through my through my headquarters and stuff and, yeah. you know, making sure that we had the right training pro- programs, we bid for the right stuff, or indeed having difficult conversations with senior commanders about what we couldn't do. Which didn't always go down well, but you know, not not being afraid to have that fight, even if um, even if it didn't do me any personal good, but uh, but just being honest about it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I don't know what I was, I, I was expecting you to say there. I don't know whether I was expecting you to say something like, you know, maybe as more cautious than otherwise would be, maybe as more thoughtful about the things which we did. But I, I do I do very much like the answer. Well, we we just became as prepared as we could because of course that's exactly what you would do yeah yeah and, and i think there was you know the, the point is nobody needed ever to convince me again that that you know whenever we're taking risks you know, bad things can happen to good people and, and sometimes actually you know because we are naturally risk takers as a community otherwise you don't you know you don't fly a fast jet or or, any, or indeed any you know a helicopter in james's case or whatever at north foot six and stuff and over difficult terrain and you know, landing in dusty conditions or whatever. So you, you don't do what we do without being naturally a risk taker. 
mm. compared to the normal population or whatever. And sometimes that can get the better of us. And so there, there were occasions in, you know, particularly actually when I was a Boston Nine Squadron, where sometimes I'd have to rein people back and remember that, you know, there is a risk. So, so don't take liberties with a hard deck that we've been given or anything like that just because, you know, you, you don't sense any risk or whatever. You know, you're not going to win the war by being a tiny bit brave in that stuff and then you know, getting shot down or whatever. So, so there were occasions like that where, you, where, yeah, that absolutely sort of came in and said, no, 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 hang on a minute. You know, we don't need to take this risk, so let's not take it because otherwise we might be, you know, we might be naturally inclined to do it. Do, do all your colleagues know what you've, what you've been through? And I don't mean people like Goddard who... Uh, you, you you're you're subsequently friends with. I mean, you know, when you just show up at a new a new job, were they all aware of who you are and what you've done, or do you have to tell them that at a later date? So I never I never sort of really tell them, as God has mentioned, you know, unless I'm specifically asked to or whatever. But you know, I, I think there's a point that I didn't, you know, I didn't really didn't really want to be sort of known or or indeed yeah, yeah. ask for any any sort of particular sympathy or, or I, I'm not sure what the right word would be, but you know, the, the POW stuff was something that happened. It's in the past. I'll tell you about it if you're really interested or I'll tell you about it if I'm asked to in terms of certain situations of, you know, preparing other people for realities of conflict or whatever. But, um, but you know, that, it's not really relevant to, um, to, you know, say sort of walking onto a squadron as the force commander and say, right, you know, before you say anything else, listen to me, I'm going to tell you, tell you about what happened yeah. to me. You know, it's, uh, so it's something you know really uh, has to be asked about. I mean, I'm not shy in telling people about it, but um, the reason it sort of always has to be asked for, you know, I'll never, I'll never force it down anyone's neck or whatever of saying, right, let me tell you my story type stuff, you know, before you tell me yours. Dave, do you ever do you still get together with uh, you know boys who are POWs with you, the two Johns, Rupert Clark, etc.? They're sort of informal booze ups, and you were yeah, yeah, and even, even formal booze ups as well. Yeah. <laughs> even yeah, better. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's been so, so you know, silver linings and all of that sort of stuff. So you know, I, I think like with Robbie, Robbie Stewart, my navigator, you know, we would have come across each other on the squadron, but. You know, we 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 were we were in different worlds, really, and stuff. And never, you know, I would imagine that we would never would have formed a a sort of a close relationship in other circumstances. But because of this, we are very close. Robbie's Robbie's the sort of godfather to uh, uh, to my son, and you know, we've uh, we've kept in touch very closely, and you know, clearly been obviously proud of uh, of what Kirsty was doing. Got to fly with her in the Red Arrows, you know, so it gave her a few hints and tips on formation keeping and stuff. But, uh, you know, just just magical moments, actually, which were, uh, you know, which were which were just fantastic. Um, and indeed with uh, with everybody else. So we, we, we get together once a year, but we keep in regular contact, you know, via emails or other occasions and stuff or when we bump into each other. So so it is a community that's uh, that's, that's survived, you know, through through the ages, even though. You know, we're different characters. Uh, we're doing different things and stuff, but uh, but it is something that still binds us. And uh, yeah, fantastic. You know, the linings are sort of relationships and friendships that you make that you otherwise wouldn't. Goodness me, goodness me. That was well, boys. Have you got any more questions? I mean, I'm, I'm sure I could come up with lots, lots, and lots more. But uh, my word. Yeah. So I, 
Yeah, flipping brilliant, Watto. Um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, and, and you just covered it there, that, um, you know, unless you know, you don't know. But then, you know, so I purposely stayed away from any detail with these guys who, who may have known it in the past. But again, you know, where I mentioned that people's jaws hit the floor with the, I guess, the sort of clarity and... You know, it's not matter of fact, you do bring it to life. But the fact that every single one of us are putting this ourselves in, in the situation that, that you're putting yourselves in. You know, we talked right at the beginning there about the, um, you know, the trepidation of going out and doing your job in the first place. But then you get into a situation that none of the rest of us here. And I would presume that 99.999% of the people listening to this as well have never had to, you know, I've never been in where they're always talking survival. You know, is that will to survive that you've mentioned a few times? You know, so as well as that sort of uh, being tested in your job, you've been unbelievably tested in life in terms of uh, of getting through all this. All whether it's you know being beaten, whether it's dislocated, you know, operating table. I mean, everything you mention there is unbelievable when you put yourself in that situation and think. What would I have done? You know, clearly, I'm sure the boys will uh, will be telling me afterwards that I'll have been sat in the comfy chair with a big cigar, telling them everything uh, <laughs> within about ten minutes, having a glass of wine. I like to think I wouldn't, but I'm sure I'd get there before uh, before Mason did. But um, you know, just to, I, I, you know, I, I know we've we've gone on longer than we normally would with an episode, but I think this one is is 100 worth it. And uh, just a massive thanks for uh, for talking us through that, talking us through the experience um and uh and opening up like that has been brilliant thank you uh, it's been amazing yes uh, fantastic to listen to and uh i had my uh, you probably tell i was talking to someone because i had my family alongside as well come <laughs> and listen to this and uh it, it's just been fascinating and i and i know from when you've spoken to us tonight clearly there's probably much more detail that you've gone into but i think the picture you've painted is uh it my even though i knew um a little bit of, of what you want, went through um i i didn't know that much and haven't heard it from yourself and so i'm now one of the people with my jaw on the floor and it's been uh amazing to listen to uh, thanks Nick. yeah yeah no it's a pleasure it's always a always a pleasure to you know chat with um with people who've been there and uh and done that or or, or not quite that but uh but you know similar sort of thing so uh yeah Thank always, God. always always fun to chat so uh and then you know Look forward to getting our first space person on Mars, God is eh? So, you know, you move well, on. So things. that is a good segue for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be you, Goddess? <laughs> it's me. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I did have a look at the, uh, the astronaut application today and was fully up, meet all the requirements, bar a master's in some sort of engineering degree. So uh, I got kippered at the first post. Never mind. I asked um, Harv the other day, I can't remember if we spoke about it, but uh, it was just a week after my birthday. They said, no, they've put an age limit on it of 49. Not that I have a master's in anything either. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Your two A levels don't, wouldn't really have it. Well, just before, we, just before we conclude this, uh, Dave, have you got anything you want, a, a, any corporate message that you want to plug? No, I, no definitely no sort of corporate. You know, I... I suppose the point is, it doesn't matter, you know, the name of the company that I work for, but you know, I, I think it's it's good to still be involved and, um, you know, tread that sort of corporate world between 
understanding, you know, when we talk to the sort of financiers and the budgeteers and stuff and about margins and all this sort of stuff, but, but understand that what we're actually doing is, you know, is, James is about to go and experience is that we're training people to go into harm's way, basically. So, you know, we've got to do that in the right way. And, uh, and that's, that's not a plug for my company. I think that's the, uh, that's the point for any of us to move out to the industry is, you know, we spent 30 years in the Air Force. So, you know, that's my vocation. Uh, just uh, just bringing the two together, I think, is the best thing that I can do now. And, uh, uh, you know, make sure that uh, that people benefit from the sort of best that industry has got to offer. In our case, obviously, training technologies and, you know, mission support and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, but yeah, not, 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 not a plug for... Um, to see per, per, per se, but uh, but that's what we uh, what we all need to keep. I, I, I guess what a, one of the things you mentioned there is uh, it's been brilliant to have James along today. You know, and a massive congratulations for getting through with Skull Crusher in the first place <laughs> and uh, and going on. But um, I think flipping brilliant that uh, you know two generations of aviators uh, are sat there. We can see them here, sat on the couch listening to this together, and and you know still having the same reaction. So. Uh, a really good pilot episode in the end. Yeah. Thanks, James. Worst episode, Dave or, or James, you know, with Climate Dunk. It's probably about the same. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I was just laughing at the beginning because Doug, when he said well, we were doing the, the, the nav test or was it a final handling test or whatever, I think, Rocky, your instructor didn't even know which test. Yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't matter no by idea. that point. <laughs> <laughs> so right. you obviously. You obviously didn't get lost, and you handled the aeroplane very well. So, congratulations, James, and good luck for the future. We did. A few, we, you're not supposed to do it on the, but I, we did a few loops and rolls, didn't we, James? We we had we found a bit of time at the end just to because uh, he's not going to be able to do an helicopter. So we but thought we'd better go turn upside. Well, if everything goes to plan. Yeah. Not intentionally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, right. Take us out, JB. Let's leave it there. Uh, thank you. Uh, th- thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Go find us at Pilot Episodes Pod. You can find Godders. So, are you are you still on Twitter, or have you come off now? Godders, you still there? Yeah, yeah. I, I just have to be careful because anything I tweet appears in the Daily Mail for some reason. Yeah, Godders is no longer on Twitter. So don't. Next to a great big picture of you with a great big sin <laughs> on your face. Don't. You're. You're. I keep forgetting yours. You're Major Dunk. Dunk Major. At, at Doug Major. At, Adam Major and I'm at J- and I'm at Jay Beardmore. So until next uh, n- next time, when we'll see you with some more pilot episodes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.